I'm Katie. And I'm Michael. And this is Missing History, where each week we bring you and ourselves a story about a woman or someone who identifies as female that we want to know more about. We'll share some stories, talk about it, and maybe get a little mad at the patriarchy. Maybe more than a little mad. Today's episode contains strong language and references to violence and sexual assault. to see you again you too man this is the problem this is the here's what it is here's think of with my noodle uh i do like going first because when you have to go second and we have a double day you have to go twice in a row mm-hmm. not fun not fun but i think different kind of fun i, I stand by your point from earlier which is that when you go first it's great because then you're done and you just get to like listen and enjoy the other person without worrying about like what you're gonna say that is true and so like that's what i'm really looking forward to all right all right mr white wine let's roll this is is another question do we want so a lot of the podcasts i listen to that involve drinking they like talk about what they're drinking at the top of the episode um to be clear they're normally doing like classy cocktails there's like a national security (laughs) podcast i listen to that does like bourbon or whiskey Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm not going to live up to that level of class ever. Well, do you want me to talk about what I drank today? Because it's been a journey. Okay. Let's hear the journey. (laughs) Because it's Sunday right now. I had, um, I had a little beverage with my brunch this morning that was sort of fancy. Um, what was it? It was some version of, um, a mule, I guess. Well, I don't know. What makes a mule? I have no idea. (laughs) Okay, well, it was in one of those little metal cups, right? And it had bourbon in it, and it had uh, ginger beer. Ooh. And it had a little bit of, like, lime seltzer in it. That sounds delicious. Basically, it was very refreshing and went down great with my lemon blueberry um, hotcakes. Oh. Which were so good. It sounds like you had a really good morning. I had a great morning. I haven't eaten the rest of the day. (laughs) (laughs) Haven't had to. Um, but right now I'm sipping on my little bear claw, which is what I call it, but that's not the name. What is it? White, White claw. claw. White claw doesn't sound right. I don't know what that and means. And what is your preferred flavor? Is that hard seltzer? This is how we this is how we came up with a podcast, Michael. <laughs> this is what we were drinking. It is that black cherry this white is, claw. This is the idea juice <laughs> that we had. Um, but it's black cherry white claw. It's it's yummy. It's 100 calories. It tastes good. Amazing. It's probably making a little bubble noises on the mic. Sorry about it. They do not fund us. They do not advertise with us. We are just endorsing they their don't. product. They can if they want, but I'm going to keep drinking it whether they do or not. It's it's great. It was on sale. Amazing. Happy days. Uh, yeah. I am drinking a Sutter Home White Zinfandel. <laughs> uh, are you wearing khakis? No, but Dang. I am... And it's, it's in one of those big bottles, too. Like, not the normal-sized wine bottles, but, like, yeah, the, the step-up the, size. The double-down. Um, yeah. And I should be clear, it's not of my own choice. It's more of, it is the wine in the house Someone grabbed the your hand and forced you to pour the bottle into your they cup. They did. That's exactly what happened. Um, and Secondary question. Do you have an ice cube in it? No, I do not. Did you have an ice I cube? I have at no point had an ice cube in my wine. Okay, um, you're not quite. You're not quite fully like 
<laughs> lordy lordy i'm over 40 but you know what i mean yeah. <laughs> i'm headed there i i did consider whether i should like chill the wine in some way i didn't because there's no room in the fridge right now but let me tell you a little spoiler for your life you take some uh green grapes and you freeze them and then you pop them in there and they're a nice little thing and they don't water it down oh that's brilliant thank you that's direct from white wine people in my family Duly noted. There you go. Um, and I'm pairing yeah. that white Zinfandel with a nice uh, Kroger brand hot chocolate because it's five degrees outside and cold. That's a combo. Is that good? That's it? That can't taste It good. doesn't taste bad, but it also doesn't <laughs> taste great, and I would not recommend it to another human being. <laughs> oh, why don't you just get a blanket? Uh, <laughs> why you gotta drink? I'm so confused. You know, I've made these choices. I feel like... This is probably the thing I'm going to get most judged for by our listeners, but you I will You need a cozy beverage, it. and then you need a beverage that makes you feel cozy on the inside. Exactly. In every way. And the, the hot chocolate's yeah, One nice that makes your brain cleanser. feel cozy. The wine makes your brain feel cozy, and the hot chocolate makes the rest of your body feel cozy. Exactly. And so now... That's nice. In your little, in your little hobbit hole there. <laughs> yes. I don't know. I'm excited to not be in the hobbit hole, I think is how I would frame it. The hobbit yeah. hole's been great. It's super cozy, but yeah. I'm excited to head off to my next my next job and the housing that will come with it. I like this orb of light over my shoulder that looks like aliens are in my house. It's pretty cool. For those of you who can't see, Katie has one of these it's like just... corner like stand light things that is literally glowing. It's, a, it's an let's get real. It's like a cone lamp from IKEA that I thought was cute and was also on sale. I think it was normally like $35, but I got it for like 20 It's like one of those paper lantern ones. It's it's cute. And it's a nice ambiance. I like exactly. it. Exactly. It's better than... And Frankie is fully taking up, conservatively, um, 40% of the couch. As is her which right. Which at 15 pounds is staggering. <laughs> it's her special skill. Goes on the resume. Cool. Cool. Great. You're first. Man. I'm first. Um, so I, in researching this week, realized that like we've talked a lot about African American women on the podcast, but haven't talked yeah. about a lot of African women on the podcast. So Ooh. sought to remedy that, um, and in seeking to remedy that, found this really incredible woman who definitely gets filed under the "How did I not know about her sooner?" folder. Um, because in addition... So everyone in this folder? Yes, exactly. On our podcast? Um, because she, in addition to being, uh, a groundbreaking scientist and activist, um, founded one of the largest environmental organizations or movements, uh, in the world and is a Nobel Peace Laureate. So... So... She's, uh, she's... So she was chill. She was chill. She slept in. She was busy. She slept in most days. Sure. Uh, she was doing things, to put it mildly. Um, her okay. name is Wangari Muta Mati, uh, and she is born in Kenya in April 1940. Um, her dad is working as an agricultural laborer on a white-owned farm in the Rift Valley region, so the sort of big, dramatic Rift Valley from all of your nature documentaries, working in that area. Um, at this point, Kenya is still a colony of the United Kingdom uh, and is still a white-dominated country. Woohoo! <laughs> Colonialism 
is here and it's only now going to start going away. Um, so she ends up not, she ends up moving back to her hometown when she's pretty young to go to school because uh, there's no school where her dad is working. Um, and in 1951, she starts attending St. Cecilia's, which is a Catholic boarding school just north of the capital of Kenya, Nairobi. Uh, while she's there, she learns English, she converts to Catholicism, and she also is sort of tucked out of the way um, as the Mau Mau uprising starts. Uh, this is a, an armed campaign to end British rule in Kenya, um, and it's going to sort of be ongoing until Kenya gets its independence. So she is luckily sort of like out of the way of this. Um, it sort of impacts the rest of her family. Um, her mom and some of her brothers end up having to flee their hometown um, because of the violence. Um, but so she is at school. She's doing really well. Um, she gets accepted into Loretto High School, which at the time is the only high school for girls in the country. Um, and she does great there like stellar student um everyone sort of is like wow she is going places and then really luckily for her she literally gets to go places um in this case she participates in a program known as airlift africa um, which is organized in collaboration with kenyan politicians who are hoping to increase access to post-secondary education for um, promising kenyan students and Senator John F. Kennedy, who some of you might be familiar hey. with. Um, and what the program does is it funds scholarships for about 300 high-achieving Kenyan students to come study at colleges and universities in the United States. Um, so uh, Matai is going to be one of those students. Uh, Barack Obama's father is another one of those students. Um, so sort of that's the world that we're in right now. Um, is Barack Obama a junior? Isn't he? Or the second? So isn't his dad's name also Barack Obama? I actually don't know. Eh, it's fine. We're not talking about no. him. But uh, that's sort of the... Yeah, so that's how she ends up in Kansas in the 60s. Um, she attends Mount St. Scholastica wow. College, um, which, as the name suggests, is a Catholic college. In Kansas. In what year? Uh, she's there 1960 to 1964, which is quite a time to be in Kansas okay. as I, a black woman. How, okay. I don't understand how we got that program through <laughs> as Americans. I don't understand how that was able to clear. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, if I had... How was Kansas like, yeah, we're chill with this. If I had to like, guess, what, it's like an anti-communist about... thing, right? It's like, they're going to come here and get an education sure. so they don't become communists. It just gets a... But like, we didn't even want to give education to our own people. But I guess that's in the South. But it's also everywhere, let's be mm -hmm. real. I mean... No? Yeah, okay. it's so... Yeah. Okay, it's great. very weird. Or is it like a weird, bizarre re rationale of like, they're not African-American, they're actually African, so we're going to give them more of a benefit of the... T you know, not, just weird, screwed up white people logic or something? I, I don't know. couldn't even begin to explain or comprehend. 
That is complex. Okay, so she's in Kansas. She's in Kansas in the 60s. In the early 60s. Yep. Uh, When it's super easy to go to school in most places in America. mm -hmm. Uh, She's there. Great. She gets a degree in biology and then goes to the University of Pittsburgh where she gets a master's in biology. Um, Dang. So she is not messing around. Um, She... (laughs) Well, in Pittsburgh, um, sort of has her first experiences of environmental activism. Local environmentalists are pushing the city to improve air quality while she's there. And she gets involved with them a little bit. In 1966, she goes back to Kenya. Um, She's supposed to start a job as a research assistant in the zoology department at University College of Nairobi. Uh, She shows up for work to find out that they gave her job to someone else without telling her. Um, Cool. Which... Apparently is not uncommon at the time. Um, at the Kenya disorganized. Or? It's it's she sort of attributes it to ethnic and tribal rivalries. Um, so there's a number of different Sweet. ethnic groups in Kenya um, who, depending on the political situation, are more or less in favor. Um, and so she, at that moment, belonged to a group that was not in favor, and so did not get the job. But. A German professor who is starting the School of Veterinary Medicine at the university is like, I'm going to give you a job because you're great. Um, And I'm also going to think that, like, you should probably go get a PhD. And I'm going to put you in touch with, like, universities She's like, you know what I'm great at? School. Mm -hmm. Six years in America, in and out, two degrees. Booyah. Give me that PhD. Exactly. So she goes to Germany. In Kansas. In Kansas and Pittsburgh. Like... Not and Pittsburgh. messing around. I've been all over that world. Okay. Um, so she's off to Germany so she's like, for two what, years. Done in six months. Cool. Um, yeah. Then comes Chill. back, um, gets her PhD officially from the University of Nairobi in 1971. Uh, she is the first woman from East Africa to earn a PhD. Period. Um, and the best part of it in all of this is that her research focuses on the development of gonads in bovines, so cow genitalia. Wow, that's a niche market, isn't it? It is. Um, I mean, it makes perfect sense for like what she, where she is and what she's doing, uh, but it's also sure. just like amazing research. That's okay. Great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't say it speaks to me, but okay. I'm glad she got a PhD. Yeah, and it's. I mean, it's obviously it's important in a largely agricultural country, like where cows are like a huge deal. Like figuring out cow genitalia is important. Yeah, she needs to know what's up. She's got to control these populations, make them bigger, make them smaller. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Um, great. It's also a great metaphor for her personal life in a lot of ways. Um, and I'll explain <laughs> why. Uh, so she gets married in the early 70s, um, has two kids with her husband. But in 1977, her and her husband separate and they divorce in 1979. Her husband is the one who mm-hmm. files for divorce accusing her of being Mm -hmm. too strong-minded and complaining that he was unable Mm. to control her. He also blames his high blood pressure on her because she was so stressful. Shouldn't be a goal. Shouldn't be a goal. Reevaluate yourself, Mm -hmm. man. So obviously... Why you gotta control people? There's a lot of patriarchy at play here. Um, No. Right? Shocker. Sorry. Um, Sorry. The judge rules in his favor, so they... awards the oh divorce. Oh my god, Michael, you gotta warn me. I'm sorry. You gotta warn me um, for that. It's gonna get, that was... it's gonna get better and it's gonna get worse. This is where we're going. 
Okay. Um, oh, my God. Sh- in 1979? 1979. That's disgusting. Mm-hmm. That's gross. I don't like that. Okay, go ahead. She is understandably a little miffed about this. So at some point gets quoted as calling the judge incompetent. Uh, he -hmm. proceeds to sentence her to six months in jail for contempt of court for saying that. Yeah, that's what happens when I get miffed, for sure. Jail time. (laughs) Um, So she serves a couple of days and then gets released, you know. To be clear, still gets put in jail. Uh, But as part of her release, the judge orders her to stop using her husband's surname. So Mm -hmm. sort of like a nice middle finger to both of them. Oh, darn. Sure. Uh, Happy to do it. What she does is she just adds an extra A to it. So it doesn't change the pronunciation (laughs) or anything like that. It's just like there's another A. So it's technically different. And she's like, there you go. Suck it. Which is like a very particular kind of middle finger. But something I deeply appreciated when I read it. Um, So personal life, a little bit complicated. Academically doing great she's appointed an associate professor and eventually chair of the department of veterinary anatomy uh she's the first woman to hold both of those positions in kenya um and she becomes politically active in this period um Mm -hmm. she's working with the national council of women of kenya um, and also starts volunteering with local environmental groups in nairobi um she's going to start a company um with the aim of sort of paying people small amounts of money to plant trees with the idea being to create jobs but also to help restore the environment Um, this is an idea that's Mm going to stick with her even though the company itself is going to be unsuccessful and folds pretty quickly Um, but as sort of part of her organizing work um, in 1977 the National Council of Women organizes a big march in Nairobi And as part of this march, they sort of symbolically plant seven trees in one of the major parks downtown to commemorate a group of historical community leaders. Um, But from this moment, um, she gets this idea that will eventually turn into what's called the Greenbelt Movement. Um, And it's basically, it starts with this really simple idea that like trees are really important in the lives of rural women. Um, They provide shelter. They help deal with erosion and drought their sources of food their sources of fuel um they're sort of one of these like central items that plays a really crucial role in women's lives and at the time there are these sort of big plantations that are coming in sort of destroying forests um and replacing them with like tea or palms um and so there's drought, there's deforestation, increasing food insecurity, sort of all of the like environmental impacts of that, that at the same time have really direct impacts on women, particularly poor women, particularly rural women. And so she looks at all of this. She remembers growing up in rural Kenya. And so she sort of starts this movement and it starts at this really simple place. It's just like, let's plant trees and let's pay women to plant these trees. So that way there are more trees it sort of helps cut down on all the negative impacts of there not being trees. And at the same time, these women have a source of income that they can use. Um, Really quickly, though, because of all of the things I just mentioned, she realizes that, like, the root causes of the issues that the trees are helping to sort of alleviate are political, they're social, like, they're not just environmental problems. They're sort of deeply rooted 
in the politics of the country. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep, I'm... Pun intended? Pun superintended. <laughs> I see you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, it's worth noting that Kenya at this time is a single party state. Um, it sort of borders on autocracy. Not, not, um, not good. Not great. And really not great for women. Um, so this movement that starts as like a purely environmental thing really quickly grows into sort of a political women's rights movement with an environmental component to it. Um, mm-hmm. Unsurprisingly, the government of Kenya is not a big fan of that. Um, it's the kind of thing where, like, they could kind of tolerate an environmental movement uh, as long as they stay in their lane. But the moment they start advocating... Yeah, it gets mad at trees. Right, like trees, like, it's hard to be anti-tree. What a jerk. Um, it's really easy to be anti-woman, apparently, though. Uh, Tale as old as time, my friend. Yep. Um, so they start to crack down on the movement. Um, she gets arrested a number of times. Um, in 1992, she finds out she's on a list of people targeted for assassination, which is like oh. always an uplifting thing to find out. Um, she proceeds to barricade herself in her home for like three days, basically daring the police or the government to come get her. Um, and in the process, drawing a huge amount of attention, both to her, but to the political situation generally, um, the police literally have to drag her out of her home um, because she's yeah. not going. Um, and so she's going to spend a lot of the early 90s sort of in and out of hiding as she's trying to organize politically. She's trying to keep her Greenbelt movement sort of alive um, and try to not be killed by a repressive government. Um Chill. Super chill. You know, re- in your 50s relaxing. to have to deal with Exactly. That. Just like exactly how you want to be spending that decade. Yeah. Um, she loses her position at the university. Um, she's sort of hiding from the government a lot. Um, and at the same time, she's her political consciousness is changing about the role of Western governments and institutions in Africa. Um, and she basically comes to this sort of realization that regardless of whatever good intentions those organizations might have, um, the impact of them being there is ultimately just going to be reinforcing a lot of colonialism. And so mm-hmm. works really, really hard to keep the Greenbelt movement a grassroots movement, pun also intended. Um, <laughs> so it works in expanding it to other countries in Eastern and Central Africa. Um, by the end of the 90s, they've planted over 30 million trees um, and have served as sort of a, a, in a, in a way, they're kind of like a job core. Like they create jobs for women to participate in the system and then also train those women who can then go out and be representatives in their own communities for this kind of work. Um, there's a, a sort of quote that really neatly sums up her her consciousness at this point about these issues she says the elites have become predators self-serving and only turning to people when they need them we can never all be equal but we can ensure that we do not allow excessive poverty or wealth inequality breeds insecurity oh boy that sounds familiar that sounds politically relevant to certain conversations we're having today um yeah yeah it's a great time to be alive isn't it though yeah 
Um, yeah. I would wait, say that one part about insecurity. Again? Inequality breeds insecurity. Yep, that checks out. Yes, it does. Uh, I think this is our friendly reminder that like we're a, a little pack of liberals over here. Libtards, aren't that? Isn't that? I think our that's name? the term. Yeah. Snowflakes. Snowflakes. Aren't we snowflakes? I'm feeling very snowflakey right now cool. as I'm be- being buried alive by them. Um, Great. Yeah. But like the '90s are not all terrible. Um, in 1992, okay. Kenya holds it. A- Jen just flashed our time card on the screen, and it scared me <laughs> because I thought someone was coming behind me with a 15. I thought it was my camera. I thought like a creepy 15 was coming behind my shoulder. I can't explain it, but I was terrified. Okay, sorry. I am a snowflake. I'm tender. <laughs> that's that's exactly. Sorry. It. Yeah. 90s. What's going on? What's happening? Uh, so 92, Kenya holds its first multi-party elections. Um, they're not totally like was it though? free and fair elections by the like broadest definition of that. It was like one and a half parties. But it's a, it, they're moving in the direction of greater democracy, greater transparency. Okay. Um, she participates. Okay. She's sort of working to organize opposition parties, is trying to unify um, a number of different factions, um, particularly after the election when things don't go well for the opposition parties. Um, there's a lot of tension that erupts into violence in some areas, um, in part because the government is sort of stoking that violence as like a look this is what happens when you allow democracy things fall apart um and so she's working really hard to keep things from falling apart and at the same time amazing the tactics are all the same yep uh i was listening to a podcast about the mexican revolution this week um and it's the exact it's like the sort of mexican autocracy when it goes away, it's like, things are going to fall apart. Like, look, there's a civil war because we've left. You need to bring us back. And I'm like, mm-hmm, right. Um, but so she's doing that, and she's continuing to advocate for women and for the environment and also avoiding getting killed or arrested by the government. So, like, busy. Cool. Busy woman in the 90s. Um, yeah. She, in particular, um, the government has this sort of repeated plan to take public land and divide it up and give it to political supporters um and so she protests that mm. hmm? this seems like this this seems like a bad idea i mean yes isn't it can you imagine that system in place today um you mean and who would own like montana or something <laughs> or like you, Roger Stone, you get the Dakotas, and you, Paul Manafort, you get California, and you, ugh. It is. Gross. I mean, if we want to get if we want to get really political for a second here, I mean, that's basically what the Interior Department has been doing with like auctioning off huge chunks of public land to companies for resource exploitation. Was that Zinke? Yep. Yeah, he got he fired himself. He though. did. Horse boy. Didn't he? Horse boy got Horse boy. forced to resign. Yeah, darn. Mm-hmm. He'll be missed. Um, bye. Yes. Okay, so back to her, Kenya. Sorry, back Kenya. Back to Matai. Let's give Kenya her due. Um, mm-hmm. So in, ni- in January of 1999, she's leading a protest that gets attacked. Footage of that attack um, sort of makes the international round, sparks international condemnation, and helps get the government to scuttle this plan to like give public land away to people. Um, in 2002, 
she goes to Yale for a semester to teach like a a master class or a semester courses on like forest management and things like that mm-hmm. just casually um but so. comes back um to run for parliament in the 2002 elections uh mm-hmm. she's gonna get 98 percent of the vote in her district because that's how much people like her um and this is the election that's going to see the kenya african national union which is the party that's been controlling kenya um finally lose power um and that's what year it's 2002 and that's the party that was trying to kill her in the 90s cool uh cool wow yeah right That, that kind of like so these people were trying to kill you in the 90s and you democratically ousted them from office like a decade later. Yeah, that's the way to do yeah. it. Um, she's going to go wow. on to serve as the Assistant Minister for Environment and Natural Resources, 2003 to 2005. Mm-hmm. She's going to found the Green Party in Kenya in 2003. So continuing that sort of environmental push. Um, and then in 2004, she's going to get the Nobel Peace Prize. Um for nice. her organizing and activacy around the Greenbelt movement. Um, she's the mm-hmm. first African woman and the first environmentalist to win the Peace Prize. Um, and at the time, people were kind of like, oh, you know, like, she's not really working for peace. She's working for the environment. Like, is this really an appropriate award to give? Um, but she makes it really clear, um, and the Nobel Committee, too, that their the award is acknowledging this really deep, connection between environmental justice and social justice um Mm -hmm. which is something that like in the last decade has become really really clear um and she's one of the first figures who like over and over and over again is like making that case um and particularly like the impact that environmental degradation has on women and has on the poor and so for that and people of color which i mean is super problematic in Western cultures like Canada and America and mm-hmm. stuff of like environmental racism is a thing now. Yes. <laughs> or has been a thing for a long time of like, where should we put the landfill? Oh, we're going to put it next to the community of color. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're just going to keep doing that. Or like, oh, these poor people, we're going to dump all the garbage in their water. Yeah. And nonsense like that. exactly and so she is one of the like the first people to sort of stand up and make that case really loudly yeah um and really successfully um so her organization um by the time that she so like 2000 like late 2000s like 2010 ish um annually they're training about twenty thousand people mostly women in resource management, forestry, beekeeping, sort of a whole slew of environmentally focused projects. Um, they're planting about 500,000 trees a year. Um, by the by 2010, I think they've planted about 50 million trees um, and have expanded to Tanzania, Ethiopia, and Zimbabwe, um, while at the same time still being a largely grassroots movement. Um, mm-hmm. In 2006, she's going to spearhead the UN's Billion Tree Campaign, uh, which was a campaign to plant a billion trees around the world. You know, low-hanging fruit, as it were. Um, She is going to be one of the flag bearers at the 2006 Winter Olympics in Turin, Italy. Just, you know, casual. (laughs) Um, 
Why? I don't know. That was one of the things I, I did not dig into and should have. What's her connection to Italy? Um, so I, th- I think it's um, that she is, I think, a flag bearer for the Olympic flag. Oh, oh, So oh, it's not, okay. it's just, it's in She's Italy, but the, she is. Yeah. Um, to, like, represent the rings or whatever. I think so. That's fair. Yeah. Dope. Yeah, um, yeah. So she carries the, the Olympic flag. Um, I think during the opening ceremonies, um, mm-hmm. and um, it's sort of this kind of thing um, where the um, oh, go Italy. Um, so Italy that year, um, the Olympic flag had never been carried by a woman before two thousand six as part of the opening ceremonies, um, and so Italy had. That's so gross, Michael. Yeah, you gotta I'm sorry. Just, there's so it's okay. That's so gross. I hate that I was alive for that first. I hate mm-hmm. that. I hate that so much. I was a conscious human being for that first, and I really like the Olympics, and that makes me really sad. Same. Um, Italy goes a little mm. bo- above and beyond that year. Apparently, um, all eight flag bearers that year are women. So, like, not great, but like, it's a they're trying. Great. Um, 2006, <laughs> also big year. Um, it's the year president, future president at this time, Senator Barack Obama visits Kenya. Um, big fan. Yeah. Uh, they meet in Nairobi. Uh, they plant a tree together and they discuss environmental issues while he's oh. visiting. Oh, get out. Oh, wow. Yeah. There's some really great pictures of her in this amazing, like, yellow outfit next to a very young Barack Obama who looks so different just like a decade ago mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and it is really it's they're really inspiring i teared up a little bit um she's also gonna get like a butt ton and that is a technical term of awards um recognizing her work um and recognizing um the work that she did identifying the connections between poverty and women's rights and the environment um so like all in all just like and again, like is in her is in her seventies while she's doing all of this. So like, does yeah. not slow down. Seventies, the new forty, apparently. That's what they tell me. You know, I I feel like old and frail at twenty four right now. Like everything is sore and hurt. Okay, sip sip your Sutter home there, darling. <laughs> sip on some of that Sutter home. Is that rosé? It's 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 it says it's white Zinfandel in the bottle, a blush? but it is really pink. <laughs> Is that a blushed wine? <laughs> uh, and then uh, she passes away on September 25th, oh, 2011. No. I thought she was going to keep rocking. No, I mean, she she keeps rocking, but she unfortunately... But like till now, you know, yeah, Lady Trumpington style or whatever. Yeah, unfortunately not. Um, but leaves dang. behind this like really amazing legacy of environmental activism and women's rights that was... I'm deeply embarrassed to have not known earlier, but I'm really excited that, like, I got to learn about. She's really, really cool. Yeah. And also... Jen... Legitimately a badass. Go ahead. I know know that's, like... I don't want to, like... That's the term. That is the term, though. When appropriate, and it is for most of them. Um, uh, You might not know the answer to this, but I am a little confused about how planting trees is a pro-feminist cause. Like, how women benefit from the tree planting differently than any other person yeah 
do you have an answer? I have a little bit of an answer for that. Um, so okay, particularly okay. in um, rural Kenya, um, women do a lot of um, all of the domestic work. And one of those things is gathering firewood. And so with oh. deforestation, um, women have to walk further and further to gather that. Um, it's a similar idea um, to women having to walk long distances to get water. It's just like it eats a lot of time out of the day. Um and right. similarly, like fruit and other food associated with trees is just, it becomes yeah. longer and longer trips as forests recede or get cut down. And less and less yield to Exactly. Um, and the other part yeah. of it being like, it's a way to pay rural women for their work in what is largely like a cashless economy. So because women are mostly doing domestic work in the home, they don't have access to their own money. Um, and so by paying them for this work um they provide them with a source of income independent from their husbands which as like a social Mm -hmm. benefit gives them more freedom and sort of more control Mm -hmm. um so in a lot of it's like it is like a rather interesting (laughs) feminist approach um by like tackling trees um but it also helps in that it is like a it is kind of like a safe zone it's not like you're like demanding equal pay for women it's like you're demanding to plant trees, which happens to have all of these positive effects for women. But because it's not a direct challenge on like patriarchal structures, it's a lot easier to mm-hmm. make a case for it rather than just coming in and just like making a straight up case for women's rights like that, which is sort of how it slides into being. Yeah, you got to trick them. You got you to gotta trick them into wanting equality. No, nothing will change for you. It'll be fine. It'll be just the same. You're just going to pay them more. What? No, nothing. Uh, Do you want another biscuit? Don't worry about it. <laughs> Moving on. Moving on. Moving. I love that, Michael. Good job. You. Yeah. Wangari Mahatma. Let's go plant a tree. We should go plant some trees. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, interesting fact. Louisville, Kentucky, which we both have connection to, is one of the least treed I think that's obviously not the right word. Um, urban areas in the country. There are like the fewest number of trees per like square mile in Louisville compared to like other cities. Oh, that's disappointing. I don't care for that statistic. Let's go plant Let's a tree. Let's do it. Let's put in a little missing history tree this spring. Yeah. Maybe not in February. No, thank you. <laughs> no, thanks. Yay, good job. Thank you. And we're back. We're super back. Okay. So this lady kind of goes with your previous, your Valentine's episode one. In that, ready? Born in Philadelphia. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. And Langston Hughes is going to come up too. Spoiler. Oh boy. Um, she's born in Philadelphia, August 12th, 1907. She, her, oh, sorry. Her name is Gladys Bentley. And uh, she's the oldest of four children. Her mother is uh, from, they say, Trinidad-born. Um, there's not a lot of evidence about that. Uh, later on, she says she's from Trinidad, which is maybe apocryphal. And what we are going to learn in this series of anecdotes about this woman is that some stories are true, some are not. There is some um, modification to her life story in her later life for political reasons that we'll talk about interesting so i'm gonna try and asterisk things as much as i know but 
uh, we're getting a general feel. And there's just some, there's, there's a lot of secrets that we're talking about with this particular woman's life. So take that for what you will. Like there's not a definitive history of what went down because so much of it had to be done privately because of how she decided to live. Okay. Um, because the time super sucked for a lot of people. Uh, so Gladys, Gladys is the oldest of four children. Uh, she, uh, Later in life, in different occurrences, um, she says she felt that she wasn't necessarily wanted or appreciated that she was a girl child uh, growing up and that her mother really wanted a boy. But she also, there's other anecdotes, I don't know how true that one is because it's problematic. But the other um, anecdote I found about her is that she had... uh, conflicts or she was very conflicted as a child about how she presented and there's stories of her um feeling more comfortable in the clothes that her brother got to wear and so there's this kind of inkling that maybe she's not fitting into the into the predetermined um gender that she was born and it's 1900 10 or 19 1910 190 times so that's maybe even way harder to grapple with than now um at some point she her mother finds out that she has a crush on one of her like teachers in school and her mother like takes her to a doctor to like address this issue with her daughter this quote unquote issue um so that being said she leaves t- her home at the age of 16 and goes to Harlem in New York, which, as we talked about, what's happening in New York at this time? It's 1923. Harlem Renaissance, baby. Woo! And for those that don't know, how can we sum up the Harlem Renaissance? It's like a time of intense cultural explosion in the height of, like, jazz and prohibition kind of feeds each other into this melting pot of cultural um, expression and that's very much taking root in Harlem at the time Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of literature about why and stuff like this I I think one of the reasons that um, it's thriving so much in Harlem is because prohibition made everybody kind of behave badly do you know what I'm saying and so for white people, at least, like going to Harlem and drinking and like cavorting around, you know, it's if you're going to go to Vegas, you like go to Vegas. Mm-hmm. It's like all of that kind of bad behavior amplified. Um, but all the money and uh, all the people going into Harlem and experiencing all this new trendy cultural moment is creating a lot of money and a lot of uh, opportunity for people especially in their entertainment business mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. she learned to play piano as a kid so she goes to a club in Harlem and she sits down and there's this whole story about how she got her first audition and they're looking at her and like oh what are you going to bring to the table you're kind of whatever you're not a big deal and she like sits down at the piano and her little fingers just like fly on the keys and she like some guy comes up and he puts money in her hand. He's like, I don't care what you play next, but you gotta keep playing because you're so great. And she's like, you betcha. And she walks out with like $400. Wow. So she's just, she's a born entertainer. She's, um, 
she is a singer. She plays the piano. She's um, in the style of the day of these like really charismatic women, uh, African-American women who can just sing the crap out of these songs in the blues era. You know, I'm talking um, Bessie Smith and uh, Ma Rainey, and she's she's in with all of them. Ethel Waters probably around there at that time, previous episode, yes. throwback. Um, so she finds a heart, she finds a home, and she finds a really uh, warm place to thrive, and she starts to get a following for the. <laughs> rude and crude <laughs> interpretations of songs that she decides to sing. Um, often avant-garde, often like with prompting from the audience. There's a little bit of improv. She makes other people say pretty naughty things and then she'll sing them back and like be really, you know, full jazz age. Every stereotype you can think of with the jazz age in your mind, she's like going for it. The other big thing that becomes like, part of her um, identity is the fact that she dresses uh, in a full tuxedo and top hat and there's a really cool picture of her in like full duds of white a white tux and a white top hat and she looks bomb that's amazing Um, I have really good quote here from one of the articles that I read and it says to be sure even in Harlem LGBT people still faced violence and police harassment and many continued to hide their sexuality but in no other major American city could a mannish acting woman quote or a quote womanish acting man uh, enjoy the freedom to dress as they please so this is definitely like a I'm not going to say a widespread trend but definitely more acceptable in this area of kind of progressive isn't maybe the word I want but like upward momentum of the time like there's this kind of weird it is kind of forward thinking in a lot of ways or or more acceptable because everyone's underground in a way so then everyone blends a lot better I don't know if we've talked about the pod on this podcast yet about like there's this amazing book that I have not read all of um, but it's like it's called Gay New York or Gay New York in the 20s something like that Mm -hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But it's this really, I mean, it's this weird time where for like a decade, New York, in particular, like Harlem, is one of these places where it is as okay as it is possible to be in the United States, to be LGBTQ, yeah. to not like be gender nonconforming. And it's just for that like little blip sort of post-war. Well, there's also, it's not even America too. There's like stories in Germany of like very forward thinking gender conversations and and studies and like the seeking out of scientific understanding of Mm -hmm. it prior to world war ii like this it maybe had i don't know it's like a big cultural phenomenon like the disillusionment with the world after world war one caused a lot of exhibitionism in a lot of ways and i think freed people up to maybe not live as tight lives as they had beforehand because like you weren't promised tomorrow in a different way like World War One, Spanish flu epidemic, like so many young people died in the span of five years that the world had never really coped, or the Western world, I should say, had to cope with like this major trauma. And so the 20s kind of became this wild teenage phase of a lot of Americans. And so, yeah, like I said, like it was a weirdly accepted time to be gay at that time. Now, I'm not saying it was like, you know 
easy in any way. Definitely not. Also, I'm talking about people of color. Horribly traumatic time to be alive in, and to be gay. Um, so there's a lot of layers here, but it is kind of a fascinating time and it's something I don't, I don't t- tend to think about in terms of thinking of old-timey times. Yeah, you know definitely. I mean? So she gets, uh, so Gladys gets quite the following for being this sort of far on the end of the spectrum of like outlandish wild songs that she sings and that she's dressing in a tux and it's like the most it's the most right she's the most (laughs) self-described proud of it loves that that's her brand she loves the attention she loves to entertain you can tell she gets a lot out of it um uh langston hughes okay well first of all can we talk about this (laughs) I can't help but laugh, but get, can you just guess what the name of the club that she sang out was? No, but I really want to know. It's so good. Just, oh my God. Just give me, oh, okay. The Clam House. <laughs> <laughs> no. Can you even? It's like, yeah, not subtle at all. Okay, great. So anyway, admired by many um, LGBT and, you know, all, all patrons of the clubs at the time. Langston Hughes is quoted as saying that she played a big piano all night long, literally all night, without stopping. An amazing exhibition of musical energy. A large, dark, masculine lady whose feet pounded the floor while her fingers pounded the keyboard. A perfect piece of African sculpture animated by her own rhythm. So, just living her life out loud is the best way I can describe it. And she just has a great time. And, uh, like I said, like, this, this kind of music that she is um super attuned to is the pop culture of the time as well like it's all bluesy jazz and if you're a really good interpreter of song you know you get a really good career she does record some tracks and there's not as many surviving as some of the other ladies of the time but there are a few that you can find um she has this one great song that I'll try and link to where she sounds like a trumpet. Oh. It's kind of amazing. She sounds pretty spectacular. Hang on. Oh, hang on. So yeah, um, that last line was like, I don't want no man that I gotta give my money to. So a little theme going on with your lady. Um, she uh, has this kind of louder than or bigger than life persona. There's also one story of her kind of uh, singing and dancing in front of a chorus line of like can can dancers, but there are stories that they think that um, the chorus line were all drag queens. Oh. So it's like very much like the forefront of drag queen and drag king mm-hmm. uh, spectacle at the clubs, um, which I would, if you could pick a time and a place to go visit, would that not be 
that would be very high on my list. Prohibition era Harlem gay club. That sounds amazing. (laughs) That sounds really. That's got to be fun. Um. So. 1929, not a great year for most no. people. Great year for that one lady, bizarrely <laughs> enough, but not a great year for most people. Um, the jazz age sort of starts to come to a close. However, um, one big kind of f- crazy flag story that happens with Gladys is that there's a r- big rumor mill or there's possible like first-person narratives that had... Um, attended a ceremony that Gladys participated in where she had a public marriage to a white woman in the time. Okay. Which there is no obvious documentation. And because of what comes later, there will not be any kind of verification, but it's definitely that this in the story, in the, in the, in the, in the, uh, in, what am I trying to say? In the many threads of her life, it's definitely a big highlight that people focus on now. Where it's like, there are too many people telling this kind of story about her for it to not have been true. However, there aren't many details that are written to support it. And even she never really, like... But, like, that is... In her later life, That is transgressive as you could possibly get in the 20s. It's huge. Public, white, and married. Big deal. So back to the 1929 situation. So in the early 30s, this kind of jazz music starts to fade in popularity and her sort of outlandish ideals start to fade as we start to see this, like, come down of um, the 1920s free love world. Um, uh, when is Prohibition repealed? Like, 33 or 32 or something? Somewhere in there, It's yeah. like, I think the, it was like the timeline was, Great Depression hit. We lasted a couple more years, and everyone was like, can we please drink about this? This is a terrible time to be alive. And the government was like, yes, please do. This is terrible. So I think it's like 32. Um, And then she starts to get complaints about her lewd performances. And this had happened throughout her career. Like, I shouldn't say, like, everyone was just so excited to see her whenever she came. Like, the police came and busted up these clubs all the time. And it was really hard to make a living back then but uh she tried to have a big review downtown with like the mainstream audiences once she had accrued enough like publicity but it it was too much it was 1933 you could tell she like maybe just missed the window of when it would have been okay Mm -hmm. um so she was forced to go back to harlem she did fine uh but you can tell, like, the, the style that she is imbuing and is, like, clearly of her essence is maybe not what's making the money anymore. And so she has to kind of reevaluate. And uh, as the years go on, it becomes more dangerous for her to live as openly as she maybe was in the 20s. So there's... <laughs> what. <laughs> My note says, as the Great Depression becomes a national concern and America loses a sense of humor. Um, that is incredibly accurate. Which I feel is pre- or the world, you could say. A lot of seriousness comes in in the 30s. And uh, frivolity becomes quite different. 40s and 50s, um, conservative views overtake America with the fear of communism in Europe and Russia. Uh, 
there's a lot to unpack with that. But in short, I would say that a lot of people decide to attack a lot of people that didn't have anything to do with that in order to avert eyes on themselves. What I mean by that uh, is the blues are no longer in vogue. Bentley, she let's concentrate on Gladys. Gladys moves to L.A. She tries to take care of her mom. She headlines at a lot of uh, gay night spots of the time, which uh, includes Mona's, the nation's first openly lesbian club in San Francisco, which I don't, I, this is a whole aspect of American culture I have no knowledge of, of like the gay history of America, which I feel like we're slowly starting to unpack as a country, but not in a way that's kind of like this podcast where you're like, I never do mm-hmm. that about that kind of aspect. Um, at this time, ironically, special permits in L.A. were required for her to perform her act in men's clothing, which not only was, like, her brand, but also, like, how she lived her life. There's a lot of stories of her um, dressing in men's clothing, or, I'm sorry, dressing in pants. It's men's clothing by that standard, but it's just pants, guys. But um, what it, in L.A., what our, when she moved our out parent, there, she... Our Paris- Pants permits? Yeah, Paris pants permits. This is LA uh, LA County pants pants permits. So she's she's forced to wear clothing um, that, quote unquote, was appropriate for her gender. As we know, our good friends at the House Committee of Un-American Activities investigated Bentley, apparently because of all of these stories about her same-sex marriage that she had had in the 30s. So she gets on their radar. Mm. And at the point that she gets on their radar, she you would have already seen the damning effects of being under the view of that committee. Like, it had ruined people's lives at this point. So people in the entertainment industry didn't take it lightly. And so she is an African-American woman. She is an entertainer. And she is an LGBT person. So... What would you do? I mean, like, what are your options to go up against the man and, like, stand up? And, I mean, that is an option. I'm not saying it's not. But at the same time, she is human and she decided to try and self-preserve. And I, I, my heart breaks for her a little bit. Because, like I said, like, this is a movement for lack of a better, oh, God, it just makes me so mad. Um... The main three that I like to call the 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 four horsemen of the apocalypse, but the main three horsemen of the apocalypse are J. Edgar Hoover, mm-hmm. Roy Cohn, and Joe McCarthy. Um, and all three, now we look at through the guise of they were closeted and self-hating and maybe took it out on a lot of people. And that there's a whole strain of House American Activities Committee um, going after closeted people or people that weren't open, but like living the life that they wanted to. Mm-hmm. And that apparently, according to these dinguses, was an American. So anyway. yeah, there's the the term that I really love for it. So there's the red scare for communists, and then there's the lavender scare Pinks. for the lavender scare. That's for right. LGBT people because yeah. you know. Yeah. So those are both they're both yeah. threats to American democracy. Yeah, that's where the focus needed to be mm-hmm. in the 50s. Yep, definitely. Oh, 
my God. So I, I just, I, I try when I was reading it, I was like, it, it's easy for us to be like, oh, you know, why didn't you, why didn't you? But at the same time, like I said, like this woman is, she has reached the apex of her career. She is now trying to maintain any kind of career when a style of music is not popular in the same way it used to be. So you can tell there's a certain amount of like, keep your head down and don't get a target on your back for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. So she does this really troubling interview with Ebony magazine in 1952, where she talks about being like, uh, over, uh, she's, mm, I'm really, I don't mean to like hurt anybody's, but like cured of her aversions and the steps she has taken to become a woman again, because clearly her reputation had preceded her in a lot of opportunities to work. And, you know, she cites that she, oh, I am so happy to be married. And it's also this very bizarre, it's 52. So it's this very creepy, like, not only am I a woman, but I am the right kind of woman. Mm. In that, look at me ironing my husband's clothing and look at me opening the oven and taking out some food. And it's it's super problematic. But at the same time, the first page of it is very interesting because she writes about her childhood. And I read it as like very guarded language, but very specific language of how she was going to talk about herself, her identity, and her gender. Mm -hmm. And so... If you didn't, like, if you didn't get to the second page, you'd be like, wow, this is a really powerful coming out story, for lack of a better word. Because there's so much in there that you would recognize from today about, like, self-loathing and feeling alone and feeling like you're wrong and not understanding yourself. And then the unfortunate flip side is it's 1952 and she decides to keep that narrative rather than finding the, you know. Yeah. Citing the fact that she found a community, she found love, she found acceptance, she found positive um, self-awareness in a very interesting way. So it's, yeah, I read the first page of it. I read the whole thing that I could find and I was like mortified, but the whole first page of it, you can see her, see her pain of being um lgbt back then and like how it affected her and and then i don't and then it gets to a point where she starts talking about how she's been cured and i don't believe it it's like the tone changes yeah you can tell it's not her voice anymore she's like putting it on but you can also tell there's a lot of truth in what she's saying about how she felt as a teenager does that make sense yeah i mean it's that it's fascinating it's that reading between the lines now that we have the language to talk about what that experience is yeah 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 it was fascinating and i was like oh he would have been so i the other sad part i had happened was like you would have been so fine now (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, your community... And, like, I was very moved by the fact that, like, her community exists now. It existed then, but it's, like, more open and and able to communicate now so that she's loved now. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It made me comforted in a weird way. Um, So, she appears twice on television with Groucho Marx on one of his shows, and she she actually is... There's... um, recording of her playing the piano on his show 
and it is pretty dynamic and crazy. She's just flying on those keys, and she's she's instantly like charismatically wonderful. Like the interview is kind of awkward. You can tell she's like, "I can play anything. What do you want me to play?" He's like, "I don't know. What do you want to play?" She's like, "Well, I got five hundred songs in my head. What do you want?" <laughs> and he's like, "I don't know how to deal with this." Um, so she just sits down and like jams out. Uh, at some point, she in her later life, she becomes a she's very involved with the church and she beca- she wants to become an ordained minister which i think speaks to like something about being able to connect with a crowd and that's where she's comfortable and she kind of sees a new avenue to do yeah. so but um unfortunately she dies pretty young at the age of 52 in the crazy flu epidemic in 1960 mm. but she's now seen as like this queer icon of like very progressive of the time, this sort of emblem of the jazz era and like how wild and crazy it, it could have been. And her article in that magazine is, is revered as like a, it tells of two stories. It tells of what it was like to be gay in the twenties. And then it tells about like being a grown adult in the fifties and still having to deal with it's quite a range of experience yeah. as a as a gay person in the first half of the 20th century in America. Um, few of her songs exist because they were so raunchy. No, <laughs> but I like the one I played, I to yeah, all of you them. can't hear any of like her tried and true like whoa scandal ones. But she's um, she's definitely in a lot of the literature at a time. She's cited as being this you know larger than life character. She's pretty spectacular mm-hmm. and. Yeah, I was just kind of moved by the fact that she would have been so loved, or she is so loved now. That's what kind of made me feel better at the end of it. Like, I was really happy in the in the research that I read. There was nothing but, like, love and understanding of that Ebony article that she mm-hmm. wrote. Like, none of her own community that would have had the most reason to be offended by that were like, no, we understand exactly why she wrote that. Yeah. It wasn't. You know, we're not going to hold that against her. She was clearly in a horrible situation and she did the, she was trying to do the best she could. And we love her and we, we praise her and we're going to show how, you know, yeah. I mean, they, the, the LGBTQ community clearly like is able to see the gray of someone's life and still have the heroes that they need but to have. But it's not you know just I mean? black and white and there's not just good and evil. Oh my god, it's complicated. Imagine. No, 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 no. We can't have that. Yeah. Yeah. But there was a really great um, article, I think it was on theroot.com, and Henry Louis Gates wrote about her, and he said something about, like, as sure as 1920s Harlem was black, it was also gay, or some kind of version of that. Like, it's, they're right alongside of each other. And because of our kind of weird past... 60 years of severe homophobia we haven't really engaged with that history yeah in the way that i think we could because it's all documented in a very tangible way for now that's but yeah gladys that's fascinating you have now given me like eight things i need to go read and listen to i know right harlem renaissance that's a big yeah it's a big one for me i think um yeah, I just like her pictures too. She looks Yeah, so cool. this the one of her in the white tuxedo is impeccable. Yeah, did you see yeah it? I've been staring at it this whole time because yeah. it's she looks fly. Amazing. Um 
She looks. Terrible. Yeah, I mean, it's it's great. It's I mean, it's it's great. It's also depressing. It's so it's like a really poignant reminder that like this idea of history as a linear progression from things sucking to things being better doesn't really hold mm. up, and that there's this moment Mm-mm. in the twenties where like we were on a really progressive path in terms of like gender and identity and sexuality and then the 30s the 40s and the 50s come and just totally erase all of that mm-hmm. progress in mainstream american mm-hmm. culture and sort of have to fight so then back. what happens so then what happens in the 60s another explosion of culture and progressive and throw off the the shackles of the past and the 70s kind of deals with the come down of that and then the 80s is what super crazy conservative and wildly or the 70s are even progressive with all of the different kind of civil rights movements that take place women's rights gay rights starts to come up and be talked about openly and then the 80s boom reagan put your tie on go to work and get rich and this kind of back and then we go this way and then we go back and yeah it's yeah Yeah. it's both depressing and inspiring it's like there is the possibility for great progress and also the need to fight against the reaction to that progress yeah Um, but like seeing her being held up as that icon and being sort of re um reappraised as the the badass i'm gonna own that term that she is (laughs) is really inspiring and like we can like, she was probably forgotten for a while, but now we found her again, or more people can know her now in a, in her whole self. Mm-hmm. Or at least as much as we can know, you know? Yeah. Um, and to be loved and appreciated for, like, all of her, however complicated she wanted to be, or thought she was, or... I do know that she used... Uh, female pronouns her whole life, but was really more comfortable in the dress that she decided, uh, the the male dress of the time. And I mean, that's the other thing is she's rolling around there in pants and a tux and a hat. And this is, I, I am always in my head. Someone once told me like pants for women changed with Catherine Hepburn on screen in pants. Mm-hmm. And that's a full 20 years later after this lady. So you know, she's doing it before it was cool in a lot of ways. Yeah. She's doing a lot of things before it was cool. Unsurprising. Catherine Hepper made it okay for anybody, to, any woman to wear pants, but, like, Gladys wore pants because Gladys liked pants. She didn't need everybody to do it, too. Mm-hmm. Unsurprising that women of color are Not only pants, but ahead like, of the curve. Trendsetters. But, like, starched shirts, bow tie, full top hat, close cropped hair, slicked back and a cane like full fred astaire situation and rocking it rocking out these songs which you should look up some jazz lyrics they're that's the other thing that's like surprisingly bold of the time they they're not even trying to hide it Mm -hmm. which is sort of shocking to me yeah i'm so excited to dig into all of this but then you can also see, like, later in the 50s, they can literally pull the record out and be like, what did you mean by this lyric? You know? Yeah, because the 50s Oof. is the worst. It's the worst. If you ever want to feel bad. bad about American society, look at the 50s. It's pretty bad. I mean, you can look at any decade, but the 50s just makes it easy. 
um dumb dumb dumbs white male dumb dumbs um well amazing thank you so much yeah gladys bentley i like her she's pretty great i'm gonna listen to more of her songs me too okay Bye. bye We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions for women you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Jen and co-executive produced by Frankie the Dog. Thank you for listening to Missing History.